Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Precious Father, we want to thank you for this time. Indeed, you are awesome in this place. God, and thank you for the preparation that you had given each one of us. Lord, that our heart's affection and our mind's attention may be fixed on you this day. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of of teaching and learning from your word. Indeed, O Lord God, you have lifted up your word, even above your name. And your word is a lamp and a light. And we take shelter in your word and in your presence. Father, what we are about to learn from your word is not of man, it is what you have ordained. Hence we pray that as you fed the Israelites in the wilderness, you would feed us this day in Jesus' name. Father, let the bread of life, the true bread that came down from heaven, feed sumptuously. Lord, that the, that the multitude who has gathered shall not go empty, lest they faint on the way. You know how to feed your flock. Therefore, I commit my faculties into your, your presence, God. I pray that you would use it for your own honor and glory. And we pray that you would garrison our hearts right now, that nothing from the wicked one would snatch away the word that you are about to speak unto us. Father of a truth, we know that we have nothing unless it is granted unto us from heaven. Therefore, let grace multiply, and let your loving kindness be shown unto us. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to First Peter chapter 1, and we shall continue our studies in the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. In the time given unto us, I would like to take two sections, God willing. And I would read the first section with you, and then, as God permits, we would read the second section later on. First Peter chapter 1. And I read from verse 3 on to verse 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Before we look at the word, let's just commit ourselves into God's hands. Father, we've read from your word. Now feed us sumptuously, O Lord. Give us understanding. 
Lord, and give us a willing heart to apply your word, and to be doers and not hearers alone. Fortify our hearts now through these scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'd been with us during our last study, we looked at verse 1 to 2 from 1 Peter. And Peter was writing to a group of people, just by way of reminder, the epistle was written to believers who were scattered and they were aliens. And Peter refers to them as the elect. They were pilgrims or strangers and they were dispersed and scattered throughout the then known world. And that was the group of audience unto whom Peter was writing this letter. And we also understood a a little bit about Peter. Peter, a disciple of Jesus Christ, the foremost of the apostles. His name always appears first in the list. And... We recall that the epistle was written to people who were facing imminent danger. From our previous study, we learned that that there was fear because of persecution that came from Nero. He was burning down his own empire, his own town. And he was finding scapegoats in the Christians. So this is the group of people unto whom Peter was addressing, uh, he was writing his epistle. Now let's just bear that in mind as we read the whole whole book of 1 Peter. And there was a homework given unto us that we should read the book of 1 Peter. And I trust we have read the book of 1 Peter. So I'd rather save the embarrassment of asking all of us to put up our hands how many of us have read it. And I trust that we have all read it. And when we read the Bible, let's read it in its context. And that would give us an understanding of the why and how and where. So this is the background unto which Peter was writing. And now we learn that this is good news. Because at the end of verse 2, we find that there are three things that are true of every Christian. We learned this last time. And these these three truths are the anchors for a Christian. It says that, and we have been foreordained or foreknown by the Father. We've been purchased, we've been redeemed through the sprinkling of the blood of the Son. And we've been sanctified by the Holy Ghost. And that process of sanctification still continues in us. So these three truths are indeed what keeps us. So in other words, you could say that the Father God planned it, the Son performed it, and the Holy Ghost implemented it. The Holy Spirit still continues to sanctify us through the working, through His working in our lives. Now this is the context which was, which was introduced unto us last time. And now we begin in verse 3 and you see that Peter bursts forth In doxology. And doxology means an extended praise of God. Doxology comes at the end of of a revelation which brings, brings to mind the things that God has done. And then it bursts forth in praise. That's what a doxology is. You find that in Romans chapter 1 till chapter 7, chapter 8. 
Peter talks about our Paul talks about our past life chapter 8 talks about the life in the spirit 9 and 10 and 11 talks about the Jews getting saved and at the end of 11 there's a doxology in the epistle of jude you find that jude contends against the false propagators of the gospel against false teachers and at the end of jude it says now unto him who is able to keep us from falling that's a doxology so here peter bursts forth in doxology and why why does he burst forth in doxology and remember to whom he is writing this he is writing it to a group of people who are who are first facing imminent persecution and here he bursts forth in praise now that gives us a lesson in and of itself when you and i are faced with danger do we magnify the issue or do we magnify god when peter was writing to these people he did not want to point out unto them that you're going to be you're going through difficult times because later on you find that you will be going through fiery trials you will be going through various persecutions it does not begin his epistle like that he begins his epistle with a doxology begins his epistle with a praise and he says that blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ and indeed you find that lots of times in the psalms this is how the jews address god psalm 34 one begins it says that I will praise the Lord at all times his praise shall continually be on my lips I will bless the Lord Psalm 103 says that bless the Lord O my soul and all that is within me bless his holy name why because he has redeemed my life from destruction crowned me with loving kindness and so on and so forth Psalm 107 says that give thanks unto the Lord for he is good his loving kindness endureth forever Peter is putting the problem in right perspective Peter wants the readers to understand that hey you might be going through fire right now but bless God Let's not tell the Lord how big our problem is let's tell our problem how big God is are you listening to me That's what Peter was telling to these to these people who are scattered who are scared And he's saying let's just praise the Lord bless the Lord it gives a very realistic view of hardships in fact there is there was a popular book written in it it came out in 2008 i think and it was the number one new york best seller i won't name the author but you might recognize it by its title and the title is your best life now your best life now and it was number 1 even in the evangelical circles because it talked about a best life now it promised the people reading that god is infinitely interested in you being blessed now it it introduced a thought and even a desire in the hearts of the people who are reading it by saying that if you are unwell if you are poor if you are struggling that means that you are not in the center of god's will you need to move and get into your best life now in fact the best life now is for those people who don't have a best life then 
Because if you are not born again, if you are not going to heaven, then this is the best life that you would ever get. Because your next life is going to be fiery. Because it's not even going to be a life, it's just going to be an existence where the fire is never quenched and the worm never, never dies. So the best life now is a fallacy and it kind of puts a burden on Jesus to deliver now. And if he does not deliver now, then people walk away from Jesus. They have tried Christ and they found him wanting. Now Peter did not want to swim that stream. He did not want to give any false hopes unto the readers. Let's just turn to verse 6 of First Peter. It says that, You greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Let's turn to chapter 2 and verse 20. And therein it says, For what glory is it if you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, this is acceptable with God. Verse 23. Who when he was reviled, talking about Jesus, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. 3 and 13. It says, and who is he that will harm you if you being followers of that which is good? But if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart and be ready always to give an answer for every man that asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Chapter 4 and verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Verse 12 and verse 15. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fury trials which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody. But if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God on this behalf. 5 and 10. It says, but the God of all grace who has called us unto his eternal glory. By Christ Jesus, after ye have suffered a while, make, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. In effect, there is nothing in this whole epistle which talks about your best life now. But still, look at how he begins the letter. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Many a times, the reason why we, we read the Bible, we understand this, is, 
is as much for apologetics. We need to defend our faith. That's what Peter said. That's what we, we read a while ago in chapter 3. It says that once you go through your trials, while you're going through it, sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ. And then always be ready to give an answer in defense of the faith that you have, but with meekness and gentleness. So therefore, in as much as we study the Bible, let's, let's have a clear view. Let's not be pick and choosy about the books and the chapters that we read. Let's have a holistic view of God's plan unto us. And as God reveals His work, you find that we are in a better position to defend. Because there are questions that are coming. And one of the questions is, why is there evil and suffering if God is good? And many of us give an incomplete answer, or at worst, even an unbiblical answer, when we are posed with that question. How many of us know to defend that question from a biblical perspective? We need a holistic view. And therefore, God willing, and the next time I'm around, we'll, if all things remain same, we'll deal more about suffering. But right now, let's just look at this doxology. And this doxology begins with, Blessed be the Lord and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord and Father. The question is, do you believe in God? There are many people who believe in God with a small g. And there are many who believe in a God. But Peter says, blessed be the God. And Jesus himself got into trouble in one measure against the Pharisees because of saying that you do not believe in the God. And the people said, no, we do. We are Jews, remember? Monotheistic. We have one God. He said, if you believe in that God, John chapter 5, verse 32 onwards, says that you would have believed in the one whom he has sent. Now that's the problem with the world around us. You could challenge them and say that there is one God, Jehovah in heaven, but the moment you say that, they would say, but he has not got a son. And Jesus says, you do not believe in that God because you do not believe in the one who has been sent. Now, what do we receive from this? First of all, Peter says that there are three things that we will look into in verse 3 to 5. Number one, what we have been granted. Number two, what we have been guaranteed. And number three, how we have been garrisoned. Now, I use those three G's so that you could, you could better remember them. What we have been granted, what we have been guaranteed, and how we have been garrisoned. What have we been granted? We have been granted, number one, great mercy. Abundant mercy, verse 3. Verse 3 says we have been granted abundant mercy. Now mercy is in relationship to misery. Grace is in relationship to guilt. You find the man in Luke chapter 18 go up and stand before Stand in the temple, he, he was smiting his breast and he was saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Blind Bartimaeus was crying out and saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy upon me. 
In Mark chapter 1, we find that there is a leper who could not clean himself. He came to the Lord and said, Lord, have mercy on me. Matthew 17, there is this, this father who comes and says, Lord, if you can do something, have mercy on my son. Mercy is what only God can give. And mercy is something that we understand so much because we stand in the need of mercy. Because the Bible says, and we read it out as pastor was reading in Psalm 37, he says, how great is your loving kindness unto me. That's mercy. The promise for this week says that, and because of God's loving kindness, we have not been consumed. Mercy is something that we need. It, it assumes a great need on our part and a great benevolence on the part of God. It assumes that we stand in the need of mercy. But every day in our life we encounter people who say that, oh, it's not fair. I, I need justice. I've been ill-treated. We meet such people every day, but then your heart cries out and he says, Lord, I'm glad with what I have, because you've had mercy on me. Because of your loving kindness, I have not been consumed. God demands justice. And how many of us want justice in this room? God is a God of justice. He says that the soul that sins shall die. That's justice. So justice is the fist coming at us. And mercy is the palm that is stopping that fist. If you look at the cross of Calvary, that was where justice and mercy met. God's justice demanded that sinners be punished. And God's mercy knew that we would not be able to endure. So therefore the question, how can a righteous God allow suffering and evil? Just look at the cross. He cannot allow suffering and evil. That's why he had to punish Jesus. It's more difficult to be an atheist. Because you and I can define mercy. And you and I can receive. Even in the course of this week, there was text message flying around with so much of heartache. Somebody's sister was unwell. Somebody's mother died. And a believer can stand in the framework of God's mercy, understand that, yes, at the cross, mercy was granted unto me. How would an atheist or even an agnost, how would he define suffering? Because he hasn't got even that framework. Because he's removed God from his own framework. And once you remove God, all you have is Good and evil, which you and I decide. So what's good for me is good for me. Ravi Zacharias tells the story about um, a debate between, between an atheist. I think it was Bertrand Russell and Copeland, who was a defender of Christianity. And then Copeland asked Bertrand Russell, how do you... Define good and evil. 
He said, like colors. So he said, okay, colors is what you see. So he responded, yes. I define it in terms of feelings. You define good and evil in terms of feelings. There are some countries where they eat their neighbors and there are some countries where they greet. Which feeling would you prefer? If we begin to define good and bad on the basis of feelings, we have ejected God out of the framework. Therefore, we need God. Therefore, it's better to remain a Christian and to understand that at the cross, the infirmities, have been, bought, have been taken upon Jesus. The, the Bible says that he bore our sorrows, not just our sins. Isaiah 53, talking about the servant, says that he bore our sorrows. So even the sorrows, Romans chapter 8 says that, that all creation groans. And why does all creation groan? Because... You find that it was Adam who was put in charge of everything. So when Adam fell, everything was touched by infirmity. The whole creation was touched by infirmity because man was primary in God's creation. That's why man is on top and everything that was put under man was touched by infirmities. Therefore, everything groans. Everything groans to be for the redemption, for the revelation of the sons of men. And we are children of great mercy. Number two, what we have been granted. We have been granted a new birth. You find that in the scripture. Blessed be the Lord and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who by his infinite mercy has begotten us again. So the term born again does not just appear in John chapter 3. It appears over here again. You find the word again. Why? Because the first Adam has the likeness of Because when we were born first, we had the likeness of the first Adam. When we are born again, we have the likeness of Jesus. We need to be born again. And it is by God's mercy. What is the source? The source is God. How many of us want to be born again on our own? None of us. The Bible says in the book of Jeremiah, can a leopard change its spots or an Ethiopian change its skin? We cannot save ourselves. It is by God's infinite mercy that we have been saved. And we have been brought into a born again relationship. Now what is born again? You find that in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus walks up to Jesus. We know the story. And then Jesus explains and says that, listen, Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law and you do not even know this. Unless you are born again, you cannot See the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how is this going to happen? Am I going to get into my mother's womb a second time? He says, Nicodemus, I thought you were cleverer than that. We're talking about spiritual things. And the Bible says that what is of the flesh is flesh. And what is of the spirit is spirit. God has caused us to be born again. Now, there might be people unto whom we say that you need to come to Jesus because you are lost. It is true. But that's not the reason why they need to come to Jesus. We say that you need to come to Jesus and he will show you the way. It is true. You need to come to Jesus for he will take your 
sorrows and he will take your afflictions, which is true. But the primary reason we invite people to come to Jesus is because you are dead and you need to be made alive. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that you were dead in your trespasses. But God by his infinite mercy has made you alive once again. It's only that which is alive. We thank God for eternal life. And what is eternal life? Jesus says in John chapter 17, know the Father, that is eternal life. We define it in terms of of dying and then getting into heaven. That's not eternal life. The moment you know the Father in heaven, you're already in eternal life. You have begun living your eternal life the moment you got born again. And death would be a coma where your body is changed. So eternity, let's get eternity in perspective. It is by God's great freedom and God's great mercy that he has begotten us into a living hope. And that's the third giving that he has given us. A living hope. A living hope. Every hope in this world dies. Everything dies. Why is that? Because it is touched by infirmity. There is nothing permanent that will, you can hold on to in this life. How many of us remember who was number one in 1932 Olympics? How many of us remember who was the fifth president of India? The glory fades. Let's read this epistle towards the end. It says that and man and the glory of man is like grass. Or the, or the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. And even its place remembers it no more. Peter was talking from the Psalms. Everything in this world fades away. It dies. Hope dies. There were ambitions. There were plans. There were, there were things that you and I planned for ourselves. But as years grew... They died. And if they don't die, when you die, they will die. Your hopes die with you. Psalm 30, I think it's Psalm 147, it says that, and it is vain to trust in a prince because his, his spirit departs, he returns to his earth, and his plans are gone forever. Even a prince. But then we've been... Invited into a living hope. And remember the context in which Peter is writing. He's writing this to the people who are struggling. He says that, listen, you are struggling, but you have been invited into a living hope. And what is this living hope? What is the foundation of this living hope? It says in in verse 3, it says it is because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's your living hope. That's the only hope a Christian has got. Because the Bible says, if our hope was limited to this earth, we were of all men most miserable. We have something beyond the blue. Our living hope is because of great mercy. We've been granted great mercy. We've been granted the opportunity of being begotten again. And incidentally, it is because we are begotten that we have 
an inheritance. That is what we have been granted. Verse 4 says we have been granted an inheritance. None of us can earn an inheritance. There was a man who tried to earn an inheritance. Luke chapter 15, he went to his father and said, give me what belongs to me. Try to do it our way. An inheritance is granted. It is bequeathed. It assumes a benefactor. It assumes a benevolent. Therefore, this is what we have been granted. Now, let's see what we have been guaranteed. We've been guaranteed an inheritance. Guaranteed inheritance. There are those who... who Hope to have an inheritance when their father dies. They think that I will still be in the good books of my father when he kicks the bucket. And there, were, there are examples of those people who try to take the inheritance. Jacob, for instance, he stole the birthright, the inheritance of his elder brother. Inheritance is what we have been guaranteed. You have been guaranteed an inheritance. And what kind of inheritance is this? This inheritance, let's look at verse 4. The inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven. Three things. This inheritance does not get spoiled. It is imperishable. It is beyond the reach of change or decay. We know that the things that we buy on our daily or a weekly basis, even if we put it in the best refrigerator, it's going to be spoiled. And those things that you thought are imperishable begin to perish. Like yourself, for instance. How many ever years it was when you were in your teens, you looked in front of the mirror and said, that looks good. But I tell you, as the years start catching up, that doesn't look so good. Though our outward man is Perishing. Our inward man is being renewed day by day. You thought when, when husband's wife married the wives, they said that, oh, this is going to last forever. And unless it is founded on Christ, it's not going to last forever. And there are those who have understood that my wife is steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord. That means she is unchanging. You find that she changes. And she comes up and says to you, you've changed. And you reciprocate by saying that, so have you. Everything changes. Maybe your grandfather had a Stradivarius violin. And then you said that this is what I bequeath. Grandpa, give it to me. Give it to me. And grandpa says, it's yours. And then after he dies and then you go up to his attic, you find that termites did not know about the will. The violin is gone. The piano, the desk, the pen, incorruptible. 
unstained. You like the drapes in your mother's house, you say that, Mama, I need that when I build a house of my own. That does not fade away. And then when you build a house of your own, you find that it has got stains and it has faded away. So what is this that God has promised us? This inheritance which does not defile, which is not defiled, which is incorrupted, which does not fade away. What is this? Psalm 16 says that in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And at the right hand of, of God is Jesus. The Bible says that, and after he had descended, he also ascended on high and sat at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus is your inheritance. As many as of us as are born again have this assurance. I don't know how many of us are unsure about our, about our salvation. Because every now and then I meet a person who is not sure. And more so of a person who is not born again. He is absolutely not sure. The other day I was discussing spiritual things with, with a person. And he was telling me he was not sure whether at the end of the day his goods would exceed his bads. And I told him, what if you reach the threshold and you find that your bads have exceeded your good? But now we have an assurance. Turn with me to 1 John 5. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 13. Verse 9 onwards. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son has the witness in himself. He that believeth not God has made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son might hope to have life, and he that has not the Son might hope not to have life. Is that the way it's written in your Bibles? Is that the way it's written in your Bibles? He that hath the Son might hope to have life. Might strive to have life. He works to have life. He imagines that he might have life. Is that how it's written? He that has the Son has life. That's it. It's been so categorically stated that you and I, as long as we have Jesus, have life. And if anyone is here in this hall that does not have Jesus, let me tell you on the authority of God's word, you do not have life. No, sir. But you have an opportunity today because breath is still in your nostrils. 
He that hath the Son hath life. He that does not have the Son, he has something. First Peter says in, in, in chapter 2, which we will come to, God willing, it says that you have something which is, you have wrath of God. So those who are not born again also have an inheritance. Those who are born again have an inheritance. Those who are not born again also have an inheritance. You are heirs of salvation. Those who are not born again are heirs of God's wrath. You can get that from the Lord when you cross over. And this is your best life now. That leads us to our third point, how we have been garrisoned. Now I use that word specifically because there are some translations which has used the word kept. We are kept by the power of God. Our inheritance is undefiled, unstained, that does not fade away, which is reserved in heaven for us. You see, God is not work in progress. Your inheritance is not work in progress. That final day, when the curtain is lifted up, your inheritance is waiting for you. And you know what? If you read verse 4 and 5 together without the verse division, you find that you who have been kept by the power of God. Therefore, if your inheritance is reserved, you also have been reserved. You should have said Amen. Because if the, the point is that it's not that God keeps your inheritances alone. He keeps you as well so that at the end of your days you might receive your inheritance. The Bible says in John chapter 17, it says that I have kept all that you have given unto me except the son of perdition. John chapter 10 says that I am the good shepherd. And I keep the sheep. Therefore, none escapes from my hand. Deuteronomy 33 says that, And the Lord is your portion, and underneath are everlasting arms. He has kept us. It is, we'll try, now listen to this. The, the background in which he is writing is fearful people who are saying that, What if, what if I lose my salvation? What if this struggles? What if this, is this trial will, which, Will it take me away from God? Romans chapter 8 and towards the end it says that, And who can bring an accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It is Christ that who has died. For what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing created. No things in heaven. None, nothing on earth. Neither principalities or powers. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. That is the confidence, the living hope. Of a Christian. Therefore my. My urge to them that are struggling in one form or another. Especially our brother Francis who is going through a tough time right now. Is that. Beyond all this. There is a hope reserved for you. Which is not touched by human hands. And indeed Paul says. Neither eye has seen nor ear heard nor. Heart perceived. What God has in store for them that are His. And for everyone who is going through one trial or the other, let's not define trials. See, our best definition of goodness is in defining the negatives. If you've seen 
the superlatives, the moment we try to define something that is excellent, we have to define something that is negative. That's why you find that in the book of, of Revelation, it talks about all superlatives. It says that you have the gates that are made of pearls and, and jacinths and all these precious, precious metals, precious stones. But what is our inheritance? And how are we guarded? We have been garrisoned by the power of God. Verse 5 says that you and I are not capable of keeping ourselves. We have been kept by the power of God. Did you see that? Verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says that you have been kept by the power of God. It is God who is keeping you. And how? Through faith. Did you see that? It's there in your verse 5. It says you've been kept through faith. And that faith, that too, which will be revealed at the end. So that's our hope. That's our inheritance. And that's what we have been called to receive. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says that he who has begun a good work in me, will perform it. 2 Timothy 1.12 says that, For I am persuaded whom I have believed in that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. Jim Elliot said that he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So therefore, what gives strength to the martyrs I want you to think about this. It's not the promise that your best life is now. That the, the moment you begin fasting and praying, God is going to open up heavens unto you and give you His gifts. Of course He does. He says that the blessings of the Lord, they make it rich and He adds no sorrows with it. But let's not fix our hopes on things here on earth. Because the more we fix our gaze upon things here on earth, heaven will disappoint us. Because many of us are asking the question, what is that inheritance? Right? We want to know what it is. Do you have a description of that? Where the Bible is silent, let it remain silent. The Bible just says that, and there is reserved for me an inheritance. And I tell you, it will be something out of the world. It will be something too marvelous. And God has kept us by faith to be revealed in the last time. But then that brings us to the issue of suffering. And let's just read verses 6 onwards. I want to read from verse 6 to 9. And it says, In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. The salvation of your souls. God willing, we'll come to the joy of salvation. God permits me 
Next time we will look at that. But let me just give you a list of things that you can do to handle suffering. Number one, from these verses, we are not moved from pain and suffering. These are lessons about suffering from what, what does the life of a Christian look like when he goes through suffering. Number one, we are not removed from pain and suffering by virtue of joining to Christ. In fact, the term, the, the two words suffering and Christian, they go together. If it doesn't go together, then there's something wrong with the Christianity that you and I are displaying. Because John chapter 15 says that he talks about the wine, talks about the branches. And then towards the end it says that, and I have called you out of the world. If you belong to the world, the world would have loved you. But because you are not of the world, the world hates you. So if you have not begun attracting some hatred, there is something wrong with the flavor of the salt. As we were told a while back. Therefore, if persecution comes, and it could be in different forms, if we are being hated for being a Christian, if we are being pushed aside, cast aside, because we would not do certain things, for the fact that we are Christians, it is because we belong to Jesus. Therefore, this is amply clear that it is not our best life now. It has to be the life that is to come. Number two, trials are not going to last forever. Now, I am very careful in saying that. And we also need to be careful in saying that because I cannot walk up to a person, especially our brother Francis today, and say that your pain is not going to last forever because his loss is irreplaceable. I cannot walk up to a person who is a quadriplegic and say, brother, sister, everything is well, your pain is not going to last forever. You cannot walk up to a parent who lost their child in a freak swimming accident. You cannot walk up to a, 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 a husband who has lost his wife to cancer and say it's not going to last forever. But you put it in right perspective and you say that this life, if you, re, if you deem it to be 70 or 80 years, it is nothing compared to the life that is to come. Therefore, I say that it is not going to last forever. Even Peter says that in this passage that we read. He says that, that even now, for a little while, Peter was not a fool. He was not, he was not painting a flowery picture. He was showing them the reality. Yes, many of you will be sewn into animal skins and wild beasts will be let upon you. Yes, many of you will be rolled in pitch and tar. And Nero would set you on fire. Yes, many of you would lose your head over this. Paul says, he echoes the same idea. He says that, and our light momentary affliction works for us an even greater glory. He says in Second Corinthians 4 that even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. And he says towards the end of that, he says, what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. 
Therefore, in that context, I want to tell you, your pain, brother, your pain, my sister, is not going to last forever because God is mindful of it. Number three, trials prove the genuineness of your faith. Just like all teachers know, the, the genuineness of the student is tested during an examination. Thus, the trial of our faith brings us out like gold. See, the Bible says that gold, though precious as it is, it goes through fire. And number four, your trial should not be wasted. It's not there in those four passages, four scriptures that we read, verses. But implicitly what Peter is urging the people is saying that don't waste your trials. You know why? First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that, And by the same comfort I was comforted, now I have the courage to comfort you. A, a, a sister who has lost a child can draw close to another sister and say, Sister, I know what you're going through. It's only a husband who has lost his wife to cancer that can draw into another man and say, Brother, hold on. I know what you're going through. Don't waste. Don't waste your trials. On July 30th, 1967, at the age of 17, Joni Erickson Tada, she had a freak accident. She was jumping into a lake. She broke her neck and she's been a quadriplegic ever since. She's still alive. She's 62 years old and she moves around in a wheelchair. In 2010, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She wrote, now listen to this. Tada learned to paint with a brush between her teeth. She has authored more than 40 books. She has written many musical albums. And she has also starred in a movie, an autobiographical movie about herself. And you know what she says? She says, we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry, how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and for his glory. She says that I am now in a wheelchair, but when I enter into glory, I will use my legs to just walk up to Jesus and fall on my knees again. Don't waste your trials. Look at what she says. Here at our ministries, we refuse to present a picture of a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, a portrait that tugs at your sentiments or pulls at your heartstrings. That's because we deal with so many people whose suffering and whose struggles are real. And when you are hurting hard, you are not helped or inspired by a syrupy picture of the Lord Jesus, who like a sugary sentimental image that we grew up with, you know what I mean? Jesus with the hair parted down the middle, surrounded by cherubic children and bluebirds. Come on, admit it. When your heart is being wrung out like a sponge, when you feel like mountain salt is being poured out into your wounded soul, you don't want a thin, pale, emotional Jesus who relates only to lambs and birds and babies. You want a warrior Jesus. You want a battlefield Jesus. You want his rigorous and robust gospel to command your sensibilities when you stand at attention. 
in closing, let me just tell you what gave Jesus the strength to come down from heaven and to die for us on the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 says that, and for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. I want you to, I want to challenge you that you take this question to the cross and you say, God, why is there suffering? And I'll tell you that even though you might not receive an answer why there is suffering, you will receive an answer to the question, what is God doing when you are suffering? Because you're looking at the cross. He says that infinitely, I know what you're going through. Loss of a loved one, I know. Being rejected, I know. Pain, I know. Shame, I know. I put it on the cross. And then, when we go through, Peter is writing that there is a living hope. Unless hope is there before us, we would not be able to journey this life. Therefore, what was the hope of Jesus when he came down from heaven? What was not there in heaven that he had to come down as a man? I want you to, I want you to think about this. What was not there in heaven that prompted Jesus in, in Hebrews chapter 10? He says that a body you have prepared for me. What prompted Jesus to come down? Let's read Isaiah 53 as we close. Isaiah 53. 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He, that is God the Father, shall see the travail of Jesus' soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servants justify many. Did you see that? By his knowledge, that means by his very act of coming and dying on the cross, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What he did not have in heaven, what was infinitely worth for Jesus to come down from heaven, to have the form of a man, to live a, a, a sinless life and to go to the cross, what prompted him was you. And me. We were not there in heaven. And God wants us in heaven. And that's the reason why Jesus took the form of a man and had to die an excruciating death. A shameful death. So that you and I can be with him in heaven. 
Therefore, when you're going through suffering, I want you to have this perspective that you look at the cross and there the question is forever settled that it is God who walks with me through fire. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says that when you walk through the fire, I'll be there. When you go through the waters, it shall not overwhelm you. God has promised he has infinitely proved it unto us through the resurrection of Jesus that there is something that is given unto us by the mercy of God. There is something that has been reserved for us, undefiled, untouched, that does not fade away. And we ourselves have been kept by the powerful and mighty hand of God. That when we go through this, we cry out in doxology and we say that, and blessed be the Lord, the God of our Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Let's stand up. Let's look unto the Lord. He has spoken to us straight into our heart this day. He has shown us his mercy. That his mercy is granted unto us. He has shown us that he guarantees us life eternal. And that his power is all over us. To see us through. Father, in the name of Jesus. Our Lord in heaven, we thank you for loving us so much. We thank you for the power that is in your word. We thank you for all the promises that is in your word. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus, because we know that your promises are yea and amen. And Lord, we receive them this day in the name of Jesus. Lord, that your mercy is granted unto us this day in the name of Jesus. Lord, that life eternal that is in Son, your Son Jesus, is guaranteed unto us. Father, and that your power, O Lord, is available unto us to comfort us and to lift us up. Father, we receive this in the name of Jesus. Blessed be your name, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your Son that you have used this day. Father, we ask that double portion of your anointing we rest upon him and upon his household and upon his ministry in the name of Jesus. Glory be unto the name, Lord Jesus. Thank you for hearing us, Lord. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Share the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and fellowship of the Holy Spirit, rest us now and forevermore. Amen. Surely. Goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. The word of God says, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Every of your enemy at the gate of your door shall be perished this week in the name of Jesus. Go in the power of God.